Hello, and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 81 for the week ending Monday, October 31st, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital, and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasulu. Thank you for listening in. A little later on, I'll be sharing a chat I recently had with Nick Saunders of Mimecast, the email cloud services company that specializes in email security and archiving. I spoke to him following the hacking allegations at Kenya Commercial Bank that we covered in last week's show, as well as in the wake of the diabolical DDoS attack that ground Twitter, Spotify, Amazon, Netflix, and others to a halt in the US last week. Now keep it locked to listen to that conversation. But before we get to that, we'll cover the week's headlines, which include MTN Nigeria announcing that it won't be issuing shareholders dividends for the next short while, South African fiber company Vumatel acquiring one of its competitors, Fiberhoods, to grow its foot print in Johannesburg and the Kenya Revenue Authority ruling that ride-hailing services like Uber and Little are to be classified as software companies and not transport companies. Now that's all ahead but first this week's episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Africa's premier content development production and distribution gathering Discop Africa that will go down at the Santon Convention Center between Wednesday the 2nd of November and Friday the 4th of November 2016. Now, the Johannesburg installment of the event follows the successful hosting of Abidjan Discop 2016 in Cote d'Ivoire that happened in June this year. Now, launched in 2012, Discop is a business-driven marketplace that delivers talks, workshops, screenings, TV show promotions, corporate presentations, and social events, all designed to foster meaningful interactions between content buyers, sellers, and independent producers from all over Africa and beyond. Now, during the three-day event, you'll find over 250 global and regional sellers of feature films, television content, adaptation rights, and package channels all under one roof and find on offer over 10,000 hours of prime programming suited for Africa's diverse audiences. Now, be sure to register at discopafrica.com. That's D-I-S-C-O-P africa.com. And of course, registration closes on the 1st of November. We'll see you there. And now it's on to this week's news. First up, it's not hard to imagine that in South Africa's not-so-distant future, broadband delivered through fiber could become as common in homes as refrigerators. Now, while activists continue to take mobile telcos to task over mobile data prices, fiber players like Vumatel are quietly positioning to provide as many urban households and businesses with limitless broadband access at unprecedented speeds. Now, we're talking anything from 4 megs to 100 megs per second. My wife and I just moved uh, from ADSL to fiber recently, and uh, I have to say it's a game changer. Now, to be sure, the strategy is to roll out in more affluent neighborhoods in major cities before going fully mainstream. Now, this is how it works. What happens is companies like Vumatel, Fiberhoods, uh, DFA, and uh, Mitzol are aggressively investing in the actual infrastructure, digging the ditches and laying the fiber in neighborhoods. Then it's up to individual homeowners to contact them to install broadband boxes in their homes. Once that's done, um, a homeowner or a business owner would then contact an ISP like Vox or Cool Ideas, MWeb, or even Celsi or Telcom uh, to deliver internet access. Now, there's already consolidation happening upstream in terms of the fiber business, uh, what with Vumatel acquiring fiberhoods. In a move that Vumatel CEO Neil Schumann has described as being complementary to Vumatel's footprint in Johannesburg. Now, Vumatel is aiming to have completed the infrastructure rollout in Johannesburg by the third quarter of 2017. Now, I'm not sure if 
That includes rolling out to less affluent parts of the city. I do imagine that local municipalities and uh, public Wi-Fi players will continue their efforts to deliver both free and low-priced broadband services to the low-income townships and neighborhoods, even while this goes on. So there you go, folks. Fiber forging ahead right here in Johannesburg. To Nigeria next, where MTN just cannot seem to catch a break, people. Now, due to investigations into the company's financial activities in Nigeria, the Central Bank of Nigeria has ordered MTN to cease payment of dividends to shareholders until further notice. Now, this bomb was dropped at a briefing of MTN shareholders, uh, informing them that they shouldn't expect dividends for at least six months. Now, meanwhile, MTN Nigeria is sticking to its guns, insisting that the allegations of them illegally siphoning $14 billion out of Nigeria are simply not true. They've said that uh, they'll continue to fight the allegations, but nevertheless, shareholders are understandably concerned because uh, return on investment should be separate from other financial endeavors made by the company, or at least financial troubles in this case. Uh, And it does seem that at this point, their choices are limited to either staying invested for what is bound to be a long, bumpy ride to MTN Nigeria clearing its name or dumping their stocks at a time when MTN shares aren't nearly the platinum prospect they once were. Now, it'll be interesting to see how the empire makes it through this one. Uh, You'll recall that Citigroup and Standard Bank have both been accused of helping MTN repatriate funds out of Nigeria. But Citigroup has uh, since denied being involved in any illegal foreign currency transfers on behalf of the MTN Group. And they said as much uh, in a presentation made to the Nigerian parliament last week. Meanwhile, AppsTech founder and CEO, as well as angel investor Rebecca Enonchong of Cameroon, published a blog on Medium last week that gave us all a sneak peek into what appears to be MTN's less than integrous business practices. Now, her company AppsTech appears to be inching closer to getting MTN Cameroon to pay the millions of dollars in outstanding invoices for work done on projects done in that country. Now, it's a matter that she unpacks in some detail in her post entitled, We Just Blocked $2.5 Million from MTN Cameroon's Bank Accounts. This is why. Now, to listen to Rebecca tell that story in her own voice, be sure to check out her chat with me recorded some months ago for the African Tech Conversation series. Search for it on iTunes or SoundCloud or just head to africantechroundup.com and click on the African Tech Conversations tab in the main menu. Certainly makes for fascinating listening. Again, the question must be asked, is this simply MTN's season of reckoning after decades of unchecked dodginess? Well, I'm sure that uh, Rebecca Enonchong would certainly argue that the chickens have come home to roost for Africa's largest mobile telco. You decide for yourself. Now moving on, making headlines again in this week's show is Uber. Is the company an unrivaled business-savvy entity or an underhanded bulldozing machine, I wonder? Well, while I do believe the jury is out on that, South Africa's Competition Commission has found no fault with Uber and has thrown out complaints made by the South African Meter Taxi Association in November last year. Uh, They allege that Uber was guilty of contravening the Competition Act. It was alleged that uh, Uber not only made partnerships with multinational companies, giving it unparalleled access to the market, but that they also misled the public uh, with the false notion of job creation for drivers uh, while not following South African rules and regulations concerning public transport service delivery and doing this by flooding the market with vehicles and charging ridiculously low prices. Now, if you two are a little confused at what the beef was, you're not alone. The Competition Commission probably sent the SA Meter Taxi 
Association and Economics textbook to help them brush up on the basics of the free market system. Now, while the Competition Commission won't be laying charges uh, against Uber, I don't believe it's safe for them to breathe easy just yet because there are other political vehicles, no pun intended, that could be used to make life difficult for the ride-hailing service. Now, African countries could choose to follow the precedent set by a London employment tribunal, which has decided to dismiss the notion that Uber is not a transport company, but rather a technology company. Now, the tribunal, which cited a similar ruling made by one Californian court some months ago, has declared that Uber's 30,000 drivers in London are workers with rights to legal minimum wages as well as holiday pay. Now, this is, of course, a ruling that Uber is appealing. The tribunal's ruling was scathing, though. It stopped short of calling the folks at Uber a bunch of dishonest opportunists. Now, because I don't imagine for one second that South Africa's taxi industry will take the Competition Commission's decision lying down, I fully expect them to try other legal avenues to try and slow what certainly looks now to be an unstoppable global takeover. Now, in Kenya, however, the Kenya Revenue Authority, the KRA, has ruled that ride-hailing services like Uber and Little will be classified as software companies and not transport companies. What this means is that the burden of paying VAT in that country will fall on a car's owner. The owner of the vehicle is seen as the transport service provider in this case and not the services that they happen to use to enable them. And I suppose it kind of does make sense. It's, I suppose, the equivalent of the the company that, you know, supplies your business's accounting software uh, being told that um, your bookkeeper is somehow their employee. Would it be fair to, to consider your bookkeeper as an indirect employee of QuickBooks simply because you chose to use uh, their software, even if you were using their software to perhaps do books for other people. I use QuickBooks as an example, FreshBooks, whatever's out there. But in Nigeria, uh, the Lego state is reportedly putting pressure on Uber to operate based on the old taxi franchise system. That would force Uber to take on a traditional employer-employee relationship with all its drivers. Now, what do you think, though? Should Uber's wings be clipped before they change the world as we know it? I mean, in the last week, they've announced their plans to develop a flying car within the next five years. Now, imagine what that would do to the taxi business. Should the traditional taxi business be protected at the expense of progress and consumer convenience? And most importantly, are the likes of the Kenya Revenue Authority and South Africa's Competition Commission wrong to back what some consider to be self-seeking and ingratuitous claims by Uber that all they are is a technology company that's made an app that helps people get around and nothing more? Tell us what you think. Give us a shout on Twitter at African Roundup or drop us an email via hello at africantechroundup.com. Oh, and by the way, if you're in Abuja and planning to take an Uber to the airport, well, you might want to make other plans because Uber drivers in that city are going on strike starting today over a fairly long list of demands, which include uh, increasing the base fares and per minute rates uh, they currently charge Uber riders, as well as uh, a demand for Uber to include the 400 naira toll the drivers get charged to the rider's bill. Now, we'll be keeping a close eye to see how Uber responds to some of these demands. To Uganda next, where MTN Uganda's mobile micro-lending and saving facility MoCash, which of course has partnered with CBA Bank Uganda, have reportedly processed nearly $300,000 in loans over the past two months. Now, since the loans they're offering are instant and require no collateral, they're proving quite a hit with Ugandans, and uh, media reports suggest that as many as 15,000 customers are signing up per day. Now, if MoCash and CBA Bank keep this up, they'll easily achieve their target of uh, onboarding 75% of Uganda's 7 million mobile money users within three years. 
Now, East Africa keeps winning with this mobile money trend. Of course, MoCash has been shrouded in controversy, described by some as a service designed solely to crush its competitors into the ground. Uh, that said, I'm not sure how excited to be about unsecured microloans to low-income earners, um, although I've heard it argued that a mobile telco technically has an unofficial record of bankability for every customer and and by so doing, you know, it has the ability to mitigate risks somewhat. I still reckon that um, when there's a gold rush, uh, due diligence can fall by the wayside. And I'm not saying that's what's happening in this case, but hey, and then there's the question of what kind of efforts are being made to offer potential borrowers the financial education to ensure that they're making sound decisions with the money that they're borrowing. I wonder if anyone at MTN or CBA Bank has thought of that and has made that a priority. If there's such initiatives on the go and I don't know about them, do tell us about them. Email us uh, using hello at africantechroundup.com because for all of this excitement around the potential for fintech to improve the lives of low-income earners, very little, if anything, is ever spoken about in terms of upgrading public levels of financial literacy. Because from where I'm sitting, that makes the continent's poor and uneducated, uh, less potential customers and more sitting ducks that are primed for exploitation. Perhaps that's a cause those silly dancing missionaries from the US might take up instead of taping stupid music videos of themselves bringing sexy back or whatever. Uh, in fact, I take that back. Given the insulting tone-deaf apology the Oklahoma-based missionary group Luket Ministries gave after taking down a music video they made featuring five white women in traditional Ugandan dresses dancing with plastic jerry cans on their heads and knocking back deworming tablets as well as eating kale with their hands, you know, they must just stay home and let Africa sort itself out, Shim. To Nigeria next, where the Nigerian Senate has taken to live streaming its sessions on Facebook. Now, here's something I believe more houses of parliament around the continent might do well to emulate. Uh, Following a successful test run, Nigeria's Senate plans to continue live streaming its plenary sessions on Facebook, allowing anyone interested to follow the proceedings. Now, Nigerian lawmakers have also adopted an e-voting system to replace the existing yay or nay verbal voting when votes are called for by the leader of the house. Now, the e-voting system, which was used for the first time last week will now make it easier for Nigerians to track the voting records of members. Now, lawmakers have expressed their belief that technology will provide parliamentary accountability, and this despite critics whining about the continued lack of transparency around government's financial dealings. This, I believe, is a step in the right direction, which should be applauded. Well done to you, Nigeria. To South Africa now, where the government's plan to get mobile network operators to compete on services instead of network quality by creating a single open access network has been slammed by MTN South Africa, Vodacom, and even the government-owned Telcom. Now, they're opposing government's proposal to force operators to give up their broadband spectrum and share a national network. This would be part of the state's broader goal of providing broadband access to 80% of South Africans by 2019. Now, coming out quite strongly against this idea, which, of course, I did declare some weeks ago that I kind of support, well, at least in principle, um, is MTN South Africa's CEO, Mtetonyati. He's been quoted as saying that any policy suggesting that mobile operators will not be able to get any more frequency spectrum and must hand back the spectrum they already do have is untenable and unacceptable. Now, some of you listeners took me to task on social media for showing my support for South Africa's neo-socialist plan with regards to managing spectrum. Now, I have to admit that I haven't studied the matter deeply enough to take a firm position on it, but... uh, 
uh, this much is clear so far. Government clearly feels that they'd like to play catch-up and secure a more meaningful stake in what has been arguably the country's most lucrative ICT business over the past few decades in terms of revenue and in terms of harvesting quality big data. Now, it does seem a little unfair that government would seek to do this after the mobile telco industry has done what the government could never have done for itself in terms of infrastructural development as well as management. Well, at a time when mobile telcos uh, are under such huge pressure to innovate their business models in order to survive. Now, that said, I have a hard time feeling sorry for MTN Vodacom and company when there's quite a bit of evidence uh, to show that they've taken every opportunity in the past 20 odd years to milk the market for what it's worth. And in many cases, they've dealt less than nobly in many parts of the continent where they've often enjoyed monopolistic advantages. Now, in a perfect world where I was completely confident of the government's ability to manage ICT infrastructure and fairly regulate big business, I'd be totally for efforts to dismantle monopolies and force big players like the mobile telcos to compete without the advantage of owning Spectrum that other people won't be able to use when they snap it up. In a way, it's, it's a situation that would be no different to how Cell, C, Telcom, MTN, and Vodacom um, tried to convince me to entrust my fiber broadband business to them recently, um, but lost out to a little-known minnow called Cool Ideas, who, by the way, have so far provided my home with excellent broadband services via fiber. Now, again, I'm humbled to what's likely to be the profound oversimplification of what's at stake here. But you can be sure we'll be watching this story very carefully to see which way it goes. And I'll personally do my best to come to terms with the major arguments being promoted by both the government as well as the mobile telco fraternity. And so finally, Vodafone has released its annual Internet of Things Barometer Report. It's a global survey of business sentiment regarding innovation and investment in IoT. Now, the survey was conducted by Circle Research in April and May 2016 and involved more than 1,000 companies across 17 countries around the world, including South Africa. Now, following our coverage last week of the revelation that a significant proportion of the DDoS attack traffic targeting the DNS host DIN, which then in turn uh, led to the downing of Twitter, Spotify, Amazon, Reddit, Yelp, Netflix, and the New York Times, was sourced from compromised IoT devices. Now, it's fascinating to see how cautiously enthusiastic companies surveyed as part of the study seem to be about IoT given all its risks. Now, here's some interesting numbers. 90% of South African respondents believed that IoT is critical for the future success of organizations in their sector. Meanwhile, 88% are of the opinion that seeing real success and value from IoT requires significant financial and time investment. Now, overall, the report found that globally, 89% of companies investing in IoT have increased their budgets over the last 12 months to do so. Now, 76% of all companies interviewed believe that taking advantage of IoT technologies will be critical for the future success of their organization. Now, let's talk about rubber meets road situations because that's just attitudes. Most interesting for me is that 63% of IoT adopters say that they're seeing significant returns on investment because of their adoption of IoT. Now, in terms of motive, that should give you a sense of why businesses might be pursuing this trend. IoT investment now accounts for 25% of the average IT budget of companies surveyed, and this is now on par with cloud computing or data analytics. That is incredible for a trend that is relatively new to most sectors. Now, given those figures, I imagine it's fair to assume that we should expect many more attacks like the one we reported on last week to happen again. And so now, as promised, I'm going to share a conversation I had with Nick Saunders of Mimecast. Now, I asked Nick to tell me what he makes of the recent high-profile attack on Twitter and co., as well as give me a sense of what he makes of this trend towards the adoption of IoT devices. He gave me a sense of what companies ought to be doing in order to ensure the integrity of their systems. And 
And he did indeed factor in on the hacking allegations uh, at Kenya Commercial Bank that we covered in last week's show. Take a listen. Nick Saunders of Mimecast, welcome to the African Tech Roundup. Dile, thanks very much for having me. But after the week uh, the world has had in terms of cybersecurity, you guys must be rubbing your hands with glee over here at Mimecast. Yeah, it's certainly been a very interesting couple of weeks. You know, the, the whole message just drives what we're talking about at Mimecast. It's uh, creating awareness. So it's certainly a good, as terrible as that sounds, it's a good thing, you know, in creating, I think, more awareness on a global scale, how much we have to build insecurity into these things. And is this more a proactive thing or is this – typically when, when it comes to Mimecast and the work you guys do, is this uh, – your approach to it, is it typically uh, uh, helping the wounded <laughs> – nursing the wounded back to health or is it typically uh, proactively helping people not get you know, uh, hurt in the first place? So I guess it's, it's a little bit of both. You know, our, our intention is certainly to help proactively in terms of our customers and, and the people we talk to. Unfortunately, many times we do find customers that are experiencing, unfortunately, some sort of downtime or they've been exposed to an attack. And it is very much you know, a cure rather than prevention. Uh, but I guess you know, our, our message is really around creating awareness so that it can become more of a proactive approach. Let's talk about one of the more high-profile attacks of the last two weeks. One of Kenya's biggest banks, the Kenya Commercial Bank, allegedly being hacked because they have since said that all their data is secure. However, uh, there have been claims that up to 500,000 customers' information details you know, have surfaced online. Uh, a Burundian programmer a slash hacker who goes by at Iraq, Chris, has promised that he would demonstrate just how you know, not insecure uh, KCB's uh, situation was. No one really listened until now. Yeah, that's correct. I think it's often the challenge is something has to go wrong before people sort of, you know, take, up, take notice of the fact. I think the extent of a potential leak like this, the impact is so severe that I think people are certainly very concerned about it, as, as you should be. Right? And I think any form of attack, and it's becoming more and more prevalent, you can't go a day, or in fact an hour, without some sort of leak or a hack having taken place. So I think people certainly need to be prepared, they need to be aware of it, and if they're not, they are going to unfortunately feel the pain at some point in time. I'm curious to know if there's a place for people like at Iraq Chris, you know, here on Twitter, in the world you, you inhabit and in business you do at Mimecast. Are, are these the rock stars of your environment? Are these... Or what, what's your attitude to a, a sort of a, a, a person like this guy who clearly has skills to, to do what he did or claim, well, claims he's got the skills to do what he did and, and goes ahead and does it, but seems to have quite, you know, not you know, evil ulterior motives. Is there a place in the ecosystem for guys like this? Are companies snapping them up trying to, to shore up their security? Are guys like you trying to hire them? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So I think if, if you have those skills, you, you've become a very valuable commodity to any business today. And I think there's two, there's two different approaches to it. There's the guys that really go out, they have some sort of nefarious intent of accessing your data, selling it, or holding you to ransom for it. And then there's the other side of the coin that people are genuinely, they have the same skills, they do the same things, but their intention is much better. So their intention is how do we identify where there are any shortfalls, are there any potential risks or, or holes in, in the strategy that need to be closed? And then they, they either hire themselves out or they create awareness in the public domain that you know a particular organization, or even governments for that matter, may have certain risks that they may not be addressing. And these are the kind of guys that, you know, I think do have good intentions. I think it's it's a very much a gray area in some places, but there's, uh, I suppose, with, as any good story, there's there's the good guys and then there's the bad guys. And I think it's certainly, if you're one of those that has good intentions and you have the skills, I think, as I said, you, you've become a very valuable resource. And it's moved beyond the typical, I'm doing it in my basement for you know, a bit of fun. 
to it's part of the corporate world. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. So it's people arriving at work just like you and I. You know, they wear suits and ties, and they have targets and goals they have to achieve. Their end objective is obviously very different from ours, but it's just like any business. So I think as the the negative side of things rises, certainly the positive side of things rises. And I think companies are certainly looking to hire and build up their capacity to be able to prevent these risks in future. In which case, this dude just built up a CV that got seen by not just the continent, but the whole world. He he shouldn't have any problem getting uh, work uh, if all his claims prove to be true. However, I, I am interested to know where the buck stops in as far as a breach like this, assuming it to be true. Of course, again, I have to mention uh, the Kenya Commercial Bank saying, oh, everything's fine, guys, don't worry, we've got everything under under control. Assuming there is a problem such as this, who, where does the buck stop? Is it is it a CEO's problem? Is it a CIO's problem? Who's ultimately responsible? So it's interesting where cybersecurity has, for the, you know, I think, certainly become a boardroom issue. So where before typical... IT-related problems typically stayed within the IT department. I think for cybersecurity is certainly one that is on the agendas for CEOs, COOs, and, and generally the leaders of business. So I think certainly it's a company-wide uh, objective to be able to protect not only themselves, but certainly their customers' data. And I think that's incumbent on them. They need to, they have a responsibility, and they have to put in the due process and, and uh, infrastructure to be able to protect their customers' data. So I think the buck stops at, at the CEO, right? So everybody within that business then has a responsibility. If you have access to customer data, if you look after it, you, you're responsible for making sure that you keep your end of the bargain. Right? Your customers are trusting you. Therefore, you need to step up to the plate and be able to build the infrastructure, the resources, and the strategy to protect it. And again, there's definitely a good reason for the KCB to for, for them to, to, to definitely want to come out of this uh, appearing as though they did everything they could. Certainly, they, in, in Kenya, as in, as in many countries, there are legal implications if you know negligence is proved and that kind of thing. However, um, I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, you know. It's you know we we get absolute proof this went down. Is there a playbook for dealing with it in in your mind's eye? So it's, I think that's that's again a, a difficult question to answer because I think it's different for every business. But I think there's certain key things that any organisation should at least attempt to do. I think the the first starting point is once you've ascertained the extent of the problem. I think it's absolutely important to come, you know, be, be honest with your customers, whether you do that in the public domain or directly with your customers. But I think you need to take ownership of the fact because if there has been a breach, it's your responsibility to inform your customers, inform the people that work for you that this has in fact occurred. And I think that's the starting point because the moment you're seen as potentially hiding something or being dishonest, that has massive ramifications in terms of your reputation. So I think it's a starting point. Be honest open about what has happened. I think there's been a number of cases globally where companies haven't been open and honest about it, and that has negatively impacted their, their reputation severely. <coughs> like Yahoo. <coughs> Yahoo. <coughs> exactly. So, you know, you know there's, there's a number of businesses where it's you know, not only from a reputation perspective, but from a financial perspective, it's, it's negatively impacted them. So I think from a playbook perspective is let's identify where the problem is. Let's communicate. Let's be open and honest about where that problem has been, the extent of it. And then certainly work with the, the, the relevant stakeholders to put a plan in place to rectify that problem. 
So in this case, okay, so with the KCB, we're talking about vulnerability. We're talking about uh, maybe an arch- architecture issue where, you know, if you think about it, if, if enough thoughts and proactivities apply to a situation, you can secure yourself as best as possible, et cetera. And certainly companies like Mimecast and others come, come to mind. These are the people you'd speak to to make sure that your systems are, you know, and processes are, are, are straight. But um, the, interna- the big news internationally as far as cyber breach in the last two weeks has been uh, the, the massive breach where Twitter, Spotify, Amazon, Reddit, <gasps> Yelp, Netflix, and the New York Times suffered a massive uh, uh, DDoS attack, and that's that's a little different because that's that's malicious intent involved. And, you know, it seems like several entities coordinated efforts uh, to 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 make these attacks happen, uh, slow down access to these to these portals, and in some cases bring them down altogether. Different case altogether. What worries me most about that particular attack is the the role of the Internet of Things devices. They're coming out saying, "Listen, it could be cameras, it likely cameras, and perhaps other devices that were were used to to create." This just leaves me freaking out because I'm thinking, "Who is safe? My goodness, who is safe?" So again, a great question. I think it's the world has changed. You know, when when something like this happens, it certainly people question the nature of their security, and they almost think, "Well." what we've done to date is just no longer relevant. And, and it's interesting, that kind of attack is often the motive is, is not really that, that obvious at, at a starting point. And in this particular case, nobody's actually stood up and said, hey, you know, we're the guys that did it, and this is the reason behind it. But the, the net effect of that is that often people don't have access to those particular sites. And if you look at what type of sites in particular this attack caused to have downtime, Largely, it's around information sharing, so it's social media platforms, somebody like the New York Times, where they're certainly sharing relevant articles. So, you know, one could speculate about what their intent was, but it certainly does have a big impact in terms of people's ability to share information. And I think that's where people need to be concerned about is what is the intent of these people? And then once they, they've understood what that intent is, how do we build sufficient mitigation efforts into our devices? It's also about user awareness. But certainly in an attack like this, it's not just individuals that, that you know, need to secure themselves. It's also the larger players. So, for example, the Internet service providers that actually provide the linkages in the back end for, for the Internet who were directly affected by this. Though They need to build up sufficient infrastructure, build up redundancy and resiliency to make sure that they can mitigate against these types of attacks. And I think the, the extent of this particular attack, and I think this is one of the largest DDoS attacks the world has ever seen, and which means this is only the starting point of much bigger things. And as, as, as you said, those Internet of Things devices are becoming more and more prevalent. In fact, any device, as we move towards smart homes, smart vehicles, all of those devices suddenly become a target. And the world, from a hacker perspective, the world is their oyster. They now have a whole new ecosystem to be able to tackle. And I think organizations and governments in particular need to start looking at it in a different light. Just as the hackers have taken on different approaches, new approaches, I think effectively the good guys need to do the same thing. Right. And so I've uh, often held a fairly old-fashioned view with regards to the Internet of Things on this show. You know, I, I'm, pre, I'm, I'm excited for what technology can yield and how exciting and how it's you know, driving innovation and the rest of it. But I, I often sense in, in a lot of the conversations I have, even on this show, that there isn't sufficient caution being taken to the downside or at least the dark side of what could be yielded when everything from the bricks in in your building to your to your dog kennel is basically hooked up to the internet and what that could possibly mean for for security in general on and offline what what are your what's your take on how bullish are you on the internet of things and and how how would you uh how do you think people 
day-to-day people, you know, everyday people like, you know, normal people like you and I, what can we do to protect ourselves and what can companies do? So I think it's, you know, the reality, I think there's the Internet of Things is here. You know, more and more every single day there's a new device that is now able to connect to the Internet. And as as many previous waves of technological change have come before. Often things like standards, people's processes and security measures around these devices is often lagging behind the actual deployment of the technology. So for example, we'll deploy a piece of technology which sounds like a really good idea. It's connected to the internet as we want it to be. We now have access to it from anywhere in the world. But often the security measures and the people that process and manage the standards behind protecting those devices are often lagging behind. You know, a good example would be um, you know, autopilot in, in self-driving cars. So the, the manufacturers have developed the technology, they're testing it, but the standards from the regulators are not necessarily at the same level. It's the same thing with these devices. They're cheap, they're fast, they're easy to deploy, everybody's got access to them. But are we necessarily educating and creating awareness about, guys, if you're building smart homes with these devices that you can buy off of Amazon or take a lot or any of the, the online stores for a couple of hundred rand, the challenge there is, have you mitigated the perimeter around that environment sufficiently. So I think largely with the Internet of Things, it's here. It's only going to get bigger. I think our role as you know, businesses like Mimecast and other you know, thought leaders in that space, our role is to create awareness and education for the end user, for businesses, for governments around there, that we need to be very aware of what's going on and we need to build sufficient measures in place to protect ourselves. So we were at the IBM Research Lab the other day, and I mean, we, we had a look at a, p- a pretty nifty little device that, um, if it gets deployed in the marketplace, will help you know gather all this data and and better track the spread of TB, et cetera, et cetera. It could be embedded in jewelry and things like that. It all sounds really good. It sounds you know really helpful and really you know. Shout out to the people at IBM, of course, doing amazing stuff. But I don't know how open as an individual I ought to be for all this change. I don't know whether there ought to be silos I ought to be creating in my own life around what I'm willing to, to, to sort of, you know, link to the internet. Do you have a sort of perspective on that in terms of, you know, your own personal life, you know, what you're willing to put out there and what you feel safe putting out there and being linked to? So I think it depends on person to person. You know, I'll give you a good example. So I'm, I'm quite open to things like that. I think data in all its forms. Certainly, if you can collect your own personal data, imagine if you could know what your blood pressure is, your body temperature, your, your body fat percentage at any point in time and be able to monitor and, and almost self-manage your own you know, medical state. That's, that's a great place to be. I think where some people... My wife is a good example where she would be very uncomfortable with something like that. right? And I think there it comes down to trust. It's trust in what are these devices, number one, doing. But I think there it's also people shouldn't be naive. right? The reality is that these devices, when they're connected to the Internet, they then become exposed to all of the other threats that computers, for example, have been exposed to for many, many years. So I think it's really... If you do feel that you you would like access to this information, if you want to use these devices, do so with eyes open. Right? Don't don't go into it with eyes closed and hope and pray that the manufacturer or the regulator or some your service provider is going to protect you. Put just like you would build walls around your house, you'd put electric fences, you put alarm in your house. It's up to you to be able to protect yourself. But I think again, you need to look to the industry for guidance on what is best practice. What should you be putting into place to protect yourself, uh, and then just do it. And here's a random question. If you could ask a single question uh, to one of the hackers that uh, have just wreaked havoc on all these platforms abroad, what would you ask them? I would say, what's next? Right? So you've done this. Oh, I'm sure Mimecast would love to know. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So we can prevent it. Uh, but I think it, it really comes down to, so you've, you, 
what's the, what's the next big thing, right? So you, you've now got access to this data, but once you've got access to all the data, let's say we make all the data freely available across the globe, what then? Right? I think that's, that's really the question is, if there's nothing else for you to hack, what is your role to play with in, in, in the global economy? And not a bad question to ask, and certainly not a bad place to start. Many, many thanks to Nick Saunders of Mimecast for sharing his insights with me. To find out more about Mimecast's online security offerings, head to mimecast.com. Now, once again, this week's episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Africa's premier content development production and distribution gathering, Discop Africa, which is happening at the Santon Convention Center between Wednesday, the 2nd of November and Friday, the 4th of November, 2016. Now, join over 500 pre-qualified television content buyers from public and private broadcasters, pay TV operators, digital platforms and closed circuit networks at the three-day event and rub shoulders with over 250 global and regional sellers of feature films, television content, adaptation rights, and packaged channels who will meet all under one roof. Register right now at discopafrica.com. That's D-I-S-C-O-P, africa.com. And so that's the week's show, folks. I do look forward to having you join me again next week, Monday, on africantechroundup.com. And remember, registration for the third annual African Angel Investor Summit 2016 is open. The event happens on November 17th at the Landmark Center in Lagos. Please do note, though, that the one-day event is exclusively for investors and thought leaders in the early-stage investment space. And if you're still wondering whether you should go or not, trust me, buddy. The event features a killer list of 40 speakers and panelists that include Rebecca Enonchong, Stephen Ozigbo, uh, Tommy Davies, Helen Anatogu, as well as uh, Mark Essien, just to name some. Now, for more info on the program, check out AAIS2016.com. That's AAIS2016.com. So that's it for now. I'm Andy Limasugu. Until next time, do take care, Africa.